Good morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the Gospel of Mark, to the 10th chapter. Mark chapter 10. As you're turning, I'm getting ready. I'll remind you uh, that as we started a new year, we also have on our website uh, an updated uh, reading guide. So you can go there every morning and it'll give you a, uh, a passage to read. If you follow that throughout the year, you'll get through the entire Bible uh, in a year. The plan that we're on this year uh, has 25 days in a month of reading and then gives a break so that if you do, by chance, get behind, um, as we can do, it gives you an opportunity to catch up. So I highly encourage each of us uh, whether you're doing that or something, something to regularly read the Scripture. So if you'll go there every morning or you can follow on Twitter and it will automatically arrive for you. Alright, so Mark chapter 10, um, Jesus on divorce. I'll explain exactly what we're going to be doing with this here in a moment. But the first thing let's do together is read these first 12 verses. And I think I have them for you. And He left there. And he went to the region of Judah and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house the disciples asked him again about the matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces, divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Let's go to the Lord and ask for help. Father, there's not a passage of Scripture that I would dare to preach without asking for Your help. Lord, this is Your Word. It's not my Word. I have no authority save the Scripture. No preacher has authority save the Word of God. Father, I realize that this issue of divorce and remarriage in any culture at any time since the fall is a very troubling issue. Lord, it's really troubling in a land that this has drastically changed over the last half century. I have no doubt that my life has been affected in many ways because of divorce. I know that the lives of those listening have been affected because of divorce. And yet Your Word is Your Word. And so, Father, I am asking that by Your Spirit, You would give us wisdom and clarity and courage 
to listen to your word this morning. Father, I pray that you would teach us. I pray that your word would go forth. I pray that you would give ears to hear. And that, Father, you would give this preacher wisdom as I preach. Lord, I ask all these things to you, Father. I ask them through the incredible name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our righteousness, our hope, our everything. And ask now that you would apply this in the midst of your people by your Spirit. Amen. Well, as we launched last time into Mark chapter 9, we were looking at the time period right after the transfiguration. Let me give you some markers. The transfiguration occurs in the summer prior to the spring in which Jesus is executed. So if you're doing some math there, there's about a nine-month gap between the transfiguration and the cross. Now, Luke is the Gospel that actually covers this time period the most. Mark and Matthew have some of it, but not nearly as much as Luke. Most of the time, between that nine months, Jesus spends most of it in an area that is northeast of Jerusalem. It's in an area that's sometimes just referred to as beyond the Jordan. It's what is referred to as Perea. And so as a result, commentators... New Testament scholars will call this part of Jesus' ministry the Perean ministry. It is key in understanding this passage that Jesus is heavily focused in these nine months on the issue of what is Christian discipleship or what does it mean to follow Christ. In this account, uh, the Pharisees came up to Perea. They would have come from Jerusalem up to Perea in order to test Jesus. And Perea, the area of Perea was under the control. It would have been the far reach of control of a guy by the name of Herod Antipas. Now, Perea is also the area that John the Baptist would have been baptizing when John the Baptist was doing his ministry. Why do I tell you all that? Well, you remember John the Baptist, his ministry ended because Herod had him beheaded because in Perea he was preaching against Herod's divorce. So when Mark tells us that Jesus is in the area of Perea and that the Pharisees come up to test him and that they want to ask him about divorce, he expects us to understand that this was the Pharisees' way to see that Jesus suffered the same fate as John the Baptist. They wanted to get Jesus killed. On the one hand, this is a direct ethical question. Is it okay for a man to divorce his wife? But i got to be honest, I really don't think that's the main reason that Mark includes it in his Gospel. While Mark certainly desires that we hear how Jesus answers this question, I think he wants us to understand, one, I think he wants us to understand this in light of the uh, tragic motives of the Pharisees. In other words, they were trying to get Jesus killed. And two, within the broader perspective of what does it mean to follow Jesus. Christ. All that said, after much debate uh, with myself, 
I decided to deal with this this morning as a simple ethical question. God willing, we will come back next time, two weeks from now, and deal with the entire chapter from verse 1 to the end to see how it fits in the whole. Now here's why I, I felt compelled to do it. I felt compelled to do this because in our times, like in the time of Jesus, divorce remains a very pressing question. Since the fall, the question of divorce for every culture has been a pressing question. In Jesus' day, even among the Jewish leaders, there was heavy debate on the reaches of how permissible divorce may or may not be. So in the Mishnah, which would have been their main document for their understanding, there were three schools represented. You had the most, and really the ultra-conservative school, so I should do that over here on the right-hand side, um, the ultra-conservative school would have been represented by Rabbi Shammai. Rabbi Shammai said this, A man may not divorce his wife unless he has found unchastity in her. Representing the more moderate position, and the position that was the reigning position among the leaders, was Rabbi Hillel. Rabbi Hillel said, A man may divorce his wife even if she spoils a dish for him. Uh, he goes on to say if she does something very uh, provocative like twirls around in public in such a way that her dress comes up and reveals her ankles, he can, have her, he can divorce her. And then you have the liberal rabbi, Rabbi uh, Akiba, and he says a man may divorce his wife even if he finds another one who's a bit fairer than she is. Don't know what he would do, do with our tanner uh, age instead of fair. But anyway, there we go. So you have a wide reach here of all the options. Listen, in our day, and in particularly in this country, in less than a lifetime, it's amazing, there has been a major shift on how we understand marriage and divorce. I mean, a major shift. It's amazing to think that it is actually less than 50 years ago that the state of California put in place uh, and became the first state to allow no-fault divorce. That's amazing to think. That's less than 50 years ago. Ironically, that legislation was signed into law in 1969 by a guy by the name of Ronald Reagan, who is now the darling of the conservative movement. If you don't get this change. Try this. Find someone who's been born since 1969 and try to explain to them that there was a time in the recent past in this land that if you wanted to divorce your spouse, you had to go before the state, litigate a case in which you had to bring compelling evidence to demonstrate fault on the other party on your, that your spouse is at fault before you may or may not be allowed the opportunity to dissolve your marriage. You will get very strange looks. So while you want to debate or not whether this legislative changes have brought about changes in divorce rates, there is no doubt that there are major changes in divorce rates. Let me help you 
and show you some numbers here. I got these from the University of Virginia and the National Marriage Project. So if you look at where marriage was in 1960 and then look at it where it goes in 1970, it almost doubles in 10 years. But watch where it goes by 1980. A sharper increase in divorce. It has more than, or it's almost tripled in two decades. Now what a lot of folks don't actually realize about the divorce rate numbers is that since the peak in the 1980s, it has steadily gone down. So by the time you're at 2010, there's been a trend downwards. We hit a peak of about um, in the 1980s. Just because we have some folks from Egypt and from India, I did some research on India and, and, and Egypt for you. I was surprised to find that the divorce rates in both these countries is actually increasing over the last decade, uh, unlike the U.S. where it's decreasing. Before we get too enamored with ourselves, the uh, divorce rate in India, you take our divorce rate and divide it by 25 and you get their divorce rate today after doubling for a decade. Um, if you're lost on the statistics of that, uh, see me afterwards. Um, actually, don't. But anyway, all right. Um, all right. All right. Unfortunately, this is not necessarily an indicator that we as a society have better valued marriage. Instead, there are a lot of other numbers at play. One of the major contributors to a lack of divorce since the 1980s is due to the lack of marriages. That is, the, that is the graph of the amount of marriages among adults between 35 to 44 since 1960. Unreal. If you don't think that's a, uh, a compelling argument, look at the numbers of cohabitation rates. Cohabitation, for those who are not from America, this is the practice of living together without being married. This has risen in almost a matching pattern. It's startling. It is well over a hundred times the rate in 50 years. Now look at the amount of cohabitating adults raising children. So these are children being raised without the context of marriage. Unreal. i got to tell you, of all the graphs, of all the numbers that blew my mind, it was the amount in 50 years of the percentage, the change in the percentage of children born to single mothers. In 50 years, it has risen in America over 800 percent. So in 1960, five out of every 100 babies would have been born to a single mother. Today, 41 out of 100 babies is born to a single mother. So while we may have plateaued in our divorce rate increase, let us realize our divorce rate is still double what it was 50 years ago, and that's within a context where we have seriously diluted the importance of marriage. Now, I want to pause, and I want to admit and recognize that when we talk about marriage, we are talking about the nucleus of the atom. 
There's not one person, not a single person in this room who has not been marked by the effects of divorce. Some of us carry very deep wounds when it comes to this issue. Three points. First, I am sorry. I'm sorry for the hurt that you feel. God cares. And God can help. Second, I want us to realize that we feel the pain that we feel because of this is a very strong argument concerning the legitimacy of the Christian worldview. Within the Christian worldview, marriage sits at the core of the human experience. We feel the pain we do because marriage is a key piece of God's creation. Third, I'm going to ask that each of us this morning does something hard. I'm going to ask that we set aside our feelings and our hurts and our experiences long enough to objectively consider what does the Bible say about divorce and marriage. Now, I say that and tell you there's a broader culture out there that thinks we do not have the ability to do this. I beg to differ. We are grown up enough that we can set aside what we're feeling and objectively look at the Bible and ask, what does it say? It doesn't mean that our feelings are not legitimate. It doesn't mean that our hurts do not hurt. But it does mean we value the Word of God enough to say, I want to know. I want to know what it says, not what I want it to say, but what does it legitimately say. So there are eight passages that we're going to look at this morning. This is pretty much the whole gamut in the Scriptures on divorce and remarriage. You're going to get the whole deal. I'm not going to charge you extra. Um, there are five, uh, three in the Old Testament and five in the New Testament. So go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to have all of them up on the screens for you. The first of the uh, passages is found in the opening pages of Scripture in Genesis 2. Realize the idea of talking openly about marriage, sex, and relationships, that did not start in the 1960s. God has been talking to His creation in this way since He said in the beginning. So Genesis 2.24 And therefore... A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The importance of this verse is seen in the fact that it is cited six times across Scripture. But the importance of this verse can also be seen by just entering a room with men and women, say, over the age of twelve. God designed us from the beginning as two and only two genders, men and women. He designed us to be joined together, one man with one woman, in the institution of marriage. He designed it so that one man and one woman joined in marriage would have and enjoy sex. And out of that act would come more humans. Hopefully this isn't new to anybody. I'm just throwing it out there. 
It is a brilliant plan. It really is. Especially when you consider how uh, hard and difficult post-fall parenting is. <laughs> God knows He can't just put a standard door on the, on, on the entrance into parenthood. If He does so, the human race is going to go extinct. News will get out about what lies on the other side of that door about what monsters children can be. And nobody's going to ever go in that door. So instead, God makes the door into parenting like a blinged-up amusement park. So that no matter how rough the stories are coming out about parenthood, people still go through the door. And then they're caught. And they can't get out. Sorry, I'm just... just this, is, this is counseling for me for the moment. I just need to get it out. All right. In all seriousness, this verse carries the full freight of the gift of marriage. Marriage sits, if you catch nothing else, catch this. Marriage sits at the nucleus of the human existence. We are created as one man and one woman joined together for life. Touch any part of the equation and it is devastating. Alright, Deuteronomy chapter 24. God's people, like every post-fall society, ignored God's clear teaching on marriage. Within this setting, men were using their, their wives in a scheme to get money. They would divorce their wife, instruct her to go marry a very rich man, wait for him to divorce her, or for the rich man to die, And then they would have their wife come back with a lot of money and they would get rich. John Calvin, the ever-realist, describes this as husbands pimping their wives to the highest bidder. That's the context of Deuteronomy 24. Read with me, verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. By no means was this passage ever intended as Moses explaining that divorce is okay or permissible. Instead, he's simply instructing that someone who does divorce his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. If she remarries, remarries, he cannot take her back. Realize, both the certificate of divorce and prohibiting the remarriage to the, to, to the first husband, both of those are put in place purely to protect women. It says, what does it mean there by indecency? Well, certainly not talking about adultery. We know it's not talking about adultery because adultery was a capital offense. They killed you for adultery. In no way was the point of the passage that a man should divorce his wife because he finds something in her 
indecent. That's not even the point of the passage. It's saying if he does do this, then he should give her a certificate of divorce. He, it was protecting her so that she could remarry. And by indecency, unfortunately, that basically just meant something like unbecoming. So you got a man, find something unbecoming with his wife. Moses is saying if he sends her, if he divorces her for that, he needs to at least give her a certificate of divorce so she has hope to remarry. Notice how the Pharisees took it. Here's how the Pharisees understood it. If you find something unbecoming in your wife, then you can or should divorce her. Nothing like it in the passage we just read. They made it up. Malachi chapter 2. So go all the way to the end of your Old Testament. Malachi chapter 2. Recall that the people have been exiled from their land. Why have they been exiled from their land and sent to Babylon? Because of idolatry. Well, by the end of the exile, for the most part, overt idolatry had finally been taken care of. They'd been cured of that. What they had not been cured of is uh, other rebellious ways. So now the people, including the priests, the men were divorcing their Jewish wives because of the new pagan wives they had found in the neighboring lands. That's the context of Malachi chapter 2, verse 13. And this second thing you do, he's talking to the leaders, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because He no longer regards the offering or accepts its favor from your hand. But you say, why does He not? So they're praying to the Lord and the Lord's not answering. They're saying, well, why is He not answering? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did He not make them one with a portion of the, of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel covers His garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Now, verse 16 is actually uh, notorious, notoriously difficult to translate. So the ESV renders it in terms of the hate that a husband shows his wife by divorcing her. But if you have, say, the NAS, the New American Standard, or the New King James, it does it differently, and we've got it up here for you. So one, the New American Standard has, for I hate divorce, says the Lord. So they're taking it more as the Lord hating the divorce instead of it being the husband showing hate to the wife by divorcing. And so also does the New King James which begins verse 16 with, For the Lord, the God of Israel, says that He hates divorce. Either way, the passage is clear. The people were upset. God wasn't answering their prayers. And God explains, I don't answer your prayers because you're divorcing your wives. Interesting. This is not the passage that the Pharisees mentioned when they came to just ask a question of Jesus. No, they wholly ignored this passage about covenant marriage, about the seriousness of divorce 
in God's clear condemnation. They don't mention it. Alright, turning now into the New Testament. Go a few pages probably just and you're going to get to Matthew chapter 5. This is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. This is an important uh, uh, hall, hallmark for Christian teaching as Jesus explains the radical nature of the Christian life and of Christian thinking. He says here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 31, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. If I had to point a person to one passage on it, and I wouldn't want to point him to just one, I'd want to give him about eight, I would point them to this passage is the clearest declaration of what Christians believe on divorce as Jesus teaches it. First, Jesus explains here the false teaching of the Pharisees. And that is, He explains their false teaching is basically divorce is fine, just make sure you get a certificate, you give a certificate of divorce. You could sum this view up as this, as long as it's legal, it is moral. Sadly, that is often the view of many Christians today. If it's legal, then it's moral. That is not the view of Scripture. Just because something is legal does not make it moral. By the way, just because something is immoral, we don't need to necessarily make it illegal. But that's another ethical argument for another day. But anyway, moving on. Jesus then says... But I say to you, if someone divorces his wife for any reason except for sexual infidelity, he will cause her to commit adultery. Interesting. So why? Well, because she's actually still married. Even if she has a certificate of divorce. The argument is only God can end a marriage. So this woman remarries when God considers her still married and now she's committing adultery. That's the clear logic of that passage. If you're just reading that passage trying to understand it, you can't walk away with any other logic than that. Also, the clear thrust of the passage is that if someone is in a marriage and his or her spouse commits adultery, he or she is permitted to divorce. I don't know how else to explain that except the plain sense of except on the ground of sexual immorality. No, this does not require that someone divorce because of adultery. By no means. It only permits it. And there are some deeper theological reasons why adultery is the exception here. We don't have time for that, but they're there in the Old Testament. Now let's move on to Matthew chapter 19. This is the same context as the current passage of Mark chapter 10. Jesus is up in the area of Perea. It's the exact same time frame. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, He went away from Galilee. He entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. That's Perea. And large crowds followed Him, just like in Mark, and He healed them there. And Pharisees came up to Him and tested Him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? 
they might as well have just said, was Herod right or wrong? (laughs) He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? He goes right back to what? Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Well, why then did Moses command one? Listen how they put it. You've heard the Deuteronomy 24 now. Now listen how they put it. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. You're basically taking Matthew 5 here, and, and, uh, and Mark 10, and getting them together in one summation there in Matthew 19. Jesus teaches that God created marriage, as something for life. And it's only permissible for the reason of adultery. The next passage you come to, if you're going across Scriptures, is the one we read in Mark chapter 10. Then the next passage you come to is Luke chapter 16. Read with me in Luke 16, verse 18. Here Jesus, by the way, is just teaching on the radical nature of Christian discipleship in life. And He says this, Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. So here Jesus repeats the teaching that since God does not recognize the divorce, the new marital relationship constitutes adultery. In other words, he tells them they are not permitted to divorce. Now, notice that Mark, neither Mark nor Luke mention the exception clause concerning adultery. That is, Jesus does not say there except for sexual immorality like he does in Matthew. To be quite honest, I'm not sure why Jesus does not mention the exception clause or why the gospel writers did not record it. That says it doesn't negate the fact that it, Jesus clearly mentioned it in Matthew. And keep in mind, nobody... And that audience is questioning whether it's permissible or not to divorce because of adultery. It was a capital offense. You die because of that. We know that had it not been for divine intervention, Joseph would have divorced Mary. Why? Because he had good reason to suspect infidelity. I get that there are some very well-meaning Bible teachers who basically teach that there is no exception clause. I respectfully disagree. It seems to me it is very plain in Matthew 5 and in Matthew 19. And I think there's other theological reasons from the Old Testament to believe it. I'm afraid that many folks are looking at the rising numbers of divorces and think we need to close the loophole and therefore have arrived at that view. But let me assure you, all that does is confuse people about what the Bible says. If it says it in one place and you say it doesn't say it, that's just confusing. It will not save marriages one bit. It seems clear the Bible does not require divorce. does not require divorce for adultery, but it does permit it. All right, now moving on. 
to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. You thought you were just going to get one passage this morning. You got eight. I mean, eight for the price of one. I mean, really? It's incredible. All right. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Here Paul is dealing with new believers. They're coming to Christ. Some of them are married. Some of them are not married. Some of them are married to believers. Some of them are married to unbelievers. They have lots of questions as they come out of paganism about singleness, divorce, and marriage. So... 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. It's better to marry than to burn with passion. Alright, clear teaching. Paul tells single people, remain single. I don't know why we don't teach this clear. Paul says, remain single. Unless you cannot control your sexual appetite. In that case, get married. That's the clear teaching there. So what what are you supposed to do if you're single? Unless you can't control your sexual appetite, just stay that way. Paul gives deeper argument. Keep going down the chapter somewhere around verse 24 or so. He's going to give deeper argument as to why that is. If you're single and you don't read that, you're being disobedient to the Lord. Uh, uh, You need to do that today. I don't know if that's exactly right, but just read it. Alright, verse 10. To the married, I give this charge. Uh, Not I, but the Lord. Okay, so before, he's telling us things that you could clearly get from the teaching of Jesus. You can just derive that straight out of there. But now he's explaining stuff that uh, would, would have been harder to derive. To the married, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. So he's talking to the married, to the Corinthians. He's talking to people, to two believers married. He's going to deal with people, a believer married to an unbeliever in a second. What is his instruction? They should not divorce. If they do divorce, they should remain unmarried. The divorce is not recognized before the Lord. Alright, moving on. Now Paul gives instructions for those who are married, believers married to unbelievers. And this was a huge issue for the Corinthian church because they had lots of people who were coming to faith and they weren't married to believers. Here's the instruction. To the rest, I say, that is... Those not single and not two believers married. To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with her, he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving spouse is made holy because of his wife, And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Paul instructs, 
Anyone who is married to an unbeliever to remain in the marriage as long as their spouse is willing to do so. He goes so far, it's just amazing, to say that there are redemptive effects on the unbelieving spouse. That said, if an unbelieving spouse does desert the marriage, the believing spouse should let them go. They are free to divorce and free to remarry. So if you put all that together, I think you can sum up the Bible's teaching on marriage and divorce as something like this. One, marriage is at the center of human existence and should be entered into for life. Two, divorce between believers is not permitted except for the case of adultery. Three, Divorce between a believer and an unbeliever is permitted in the case of adultery or if the unbelieving spouse deserts the marriage. Four, remarriage should only be considered if the marriage is considered as ended in the eyes of God, which would be an unbelieving spouse deserting or the case of adultery. While... These may, and I say may, there are some disagreements about these principles. Even if these are clear principles, let me tell you what's not clear. The application of the principles. Defining some of these terms is never simple. Defining the term, desertion. Defining the term, adultery. Defining the term, believing. Those are not ever easy. This is where church membership is very helpful. This is where a group of pastors and elders should show, demonstrate, be part of the process of offering wisdom and help. Well, what if you do what do you do if you're here and you've been through a divorce or you've been heavily affected by a divorce? Couple points. First, I hope you see. The Bible gives clear guidance as to why you feel the hurt that you feel. The Bible explains why it still hurts so bad. No matter how trivial our culture wants to make marriage out to be, our gut level experience tells us otherwise and it resonates with what the Scripture says when it says it is at the nucleus of who we are. Second, what if you're the guilty party? What if you are one who is divorced and you shouldn't have divorced? Well, first of all, you can't undo that, especially if you're married. Undoing your current marriage because of another marriage isn't going to help anything. I tell you, I don't know of any other religion that could be so clear on this and offer so much hope. You have the same hope that we have for any sin. And that is the cross of Jesus Christ can and will cover your sin before God. You are not guilty any longer before God. Praise God for the cross of Christ. Every marriage, broken or still intact, 
has an amazing way of demonstrating for us our need for a Savior. So, whether you've endured divorce or not, let me remind you, the cross of Christ can cover your sins and cover the sins of your spouse. Nothing else can do it. If you're married, can I encourage you? Stick it out. Stick it out because this is what God intended for you. If you're in single, can I encourage you as Paul did to remain single unless you cannot? I know it's not very popular to teach that, but too often the Christian life, it's painted as if the smiling family Christmas card is the end-all be-all of the Christian life. Surely you know that took like 400 shots to get that picture. In all seriousness, if you can remain single for the kingdom's sake, please do so. If you cannot, then please do not bring reproach to the faith by trying to enjoy the benefits of marriage without embracing the corresponding responsibility. Get married. Cohabitation in the Christian worldview is an abomination. It's amazing. As I thought about this this week, the amount of money and time and energy that goes into marriage and relationships, isn't it? Almost every story or movie, it doesn't matter the movie, there's going to be something about a relationship in it. Folks, it's not happenstance. Every one of those, and what you're dying for, and what I am dying for, Those are nothing but a temporary picture of something much more fundamental. Something much grander. We're going to close by looking at Ephesians chapter 5. Therefore, Ephesians chapter 5 verse 31. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. That sound familiar? Listen to Paul. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. Paul just summarizes for you and I why we all care about relationships so much. Marriages right now are the central driving force behind the human existence. This is how life comes about. But more amazing... They are only a temporary marker about that which will be the central driving force in the coming kingdom. For in the coming kingdom, individual marriages will not be the central driving, life-giving force. Stay with me. Instead, it will be the central, single marriage of Christ Jesus, the Lamb of God, to His bride, the church. Like our individual marriages right now bring about new life to our current world. In the coming kingdom, the marriage of Christ and His church, it will give life. It will give purpose. We will spend eternity as the people of God thankful for a bridegroom who loved us when we were not worthy of His love who purchased us when we were not, had nothing to offer in return, who died for us 
when He deserved life and who rose from the grave to be our forever covenant-keeping God. This world loves relationships because God created it, the relationships to bring life to this world. Brothers and sisters, there's coming a day when the relationship of the Gospel, that is Christ Jesus to His church, will create for us all the spectacular desire, energy, and joy that are only a glimpse, only a glimpse is given in current relationships. I am waiting for that day. And so what do we do as Christians to do that? You care about marriage. You care about it. You take it seriously. You take it serious if you're single. And you take it serious if you're married. So I was thinking about closing the message. Maybe it's just me, but this was fitting. I want us to close with the hymn, Rock of Ages. I think this is what a bunch of people who realize how important marriage is to the Christian worldview. I think this is the fitting response of a group of people. And it basically is, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in Thee. Let the water and the blood from Your riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Let's pray.